As Christians, we worship God. We often say that at the very start of our times together. We have gathered here to worship God. But what exactly do we mean by that? Who exactly are we worshiping? Jesus? God the Father who sent Jesus? And what about the Holy Spirit? Many of us will be familiar with the idea that God is a trinity. He is one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Morris mentioned that in his prayer. Do we worship them all? Equally? Are they all equal? Some of us might be thinking, well, does it really matter? The answer is yes, it does matter. When we worship God, we need to know who we're worshiping. We need to know what the Bible tells us about this. Because otherwise, we just end up making assumptions. Assumptions that might not actually be true. One very common assumption is that God the Father is a bit of an angry guy who would crush us all if it wasn't for his much more friendly son, Jesus, who twists his father's arm and convinces him to give us a bit of grace. Of course, not many people would put it as strongly as that, but even if we buy into that idea a little bit, then we end up living with the belief that there's a bit of tension between the father and the son. And if there's tension, can we ever really be sure of God's love and acceptance? What if the father stops listening to the son? What if, in your case or my case, the son stops being able to twist the father's arm? What happens to us then? If Jesus and his father don't quite see eye to eye, then we are in a precarious situation. Another common assumption is that Jesus is a God, but he is a lesser God than his Father. That is the teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. And what that leads to, what goes along with that view of Jesus as a lesser God, is the belief that he can only sort of be your Savior. Your salvation depends partly on trusting in Jesus and partly on you living a good enough life. If Jesus is a lesser God, then he's a lesser Savior too. And that leaves us in a miserable mess. We could think about other assumptions people make about God. But hopefully just those two examples show it really does matter that we understand what the Bible says about this. And this morning, as we turn back to John's Gospel, we come to one of the Bible passages that gives us significant help here. Later in John's gospel, we're going to hear plenty about God the Holy Spirit. But in John chapter 5, we're given help to understand the relationship of God the Father and God the Son. And that helps us to be clear on where we stand with God today. Last week, we looked at the first 18 verses of chapter 5. And we saw in those verses, Jesus uh, returning to Jerusalem, we saw him heal a man who'd been an invalid for 38 years. It was a wonderful display of love 
and supernatural power. But all the Jewish leaders took notice of was that Jesus performed the healing on the Sabbath. That was all they could see. And in verse 16 of chapter 5, John told us they began to persecute Jesus for that. And then we read, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. We noticed last week the Jews agreed that God worked on the Sabbath. The command to take a day off normal work did not apply to God. Because if he took a day off, the universe would collapse. It is God who sustains the universe moment by moment. So they agreed that God was always at his work. But notice how Jesus used that as the explanation for his own work on the Sabbath. My father is always working, and I too am working. His work is my work. And the Jewish leaders had no doubt what Jesus meant by that. He was making himself equal with God. The question is, what does it mean for Jesus to be equal with his father? Does it mean Jesus is another God alongside his father? Does it mean he's a God in competition with his father? Well, starting in verse 19, Jesus answers those questions. He explains what it means for him to be equal with his father. If you haven't turned to the passage yet, you'll find it on page 1068 in the church Bibles or in the larger print Bibles, 1655. John chapter 5, beginning at verse 19, and we'll read down to verse 30. Continuing his conversation with the Jewish leaders, verse 19 says, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father." Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. 
And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. This is God's word. And it tells us four truths about God the Son's equality with God the Father. It means the Son is dependent on and perfectly united with the Father. It means the Son has authority to do what only God can do. It means the Son is to be honored just as the Father is honored. And it means life comes to those who hear and obey the Son's voice. First in verses 19 to 20. God the Son's equality with God the Father means the Son is dependent on and perfectly united with the Father. When we hear about two people uh, being equal, we often hear that said in the context of a rivalry of some kind. So we might hear that two athletes, two boxers maybe, two runners, are equally matched going into the contest. Or we might hear about two teams being equally matched before they play each other. And so, when we're told God the Son and God the Father are equal, we might think something similar. That they come with their own aims and agendas, and it's a close call as to who gets what they want. But here, Jesus gives us a very different picture. Now, in this time and culture in which Jesus is living and speaking, most sons grew up in the same trade or profession as their fathers. So if the father was a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker, the son would learn the same work, and he would learn it from his father. The son wouldn't set up in competition to his father. He would enter into the family business with his father. In fact, that was Jesus' own experience as a boy growing up in Mary and Joseph's family. Joseph was a carpenter, and Jesus learned the trade from Joseph. Not so he could set up a rival carpenter shop across the road, and nor was it so he could be Joseph's errand boy. Jesus learned the trade from Joseph so he could participate equally in the family business. And that's what happened. In Matthew and Luke's accounts of Jesus' life, They tell us Jesus was known as both the carpenter's son and he was known as the carpenter. Jesus learned from Joseph not because he was lesser than Joseph, not because he was a rival to Joseph. He learned from the carpenter in order to join the carpenter in his work as a carpenter himself. And that reality unlocks the significance of Jesus' words here about his relationship with his Father in heaven. 
Look again at Jesus' words in the middle of verse 19. He says, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Jesus makes it clear that he is dependent on his Father. It's important to realize when he says the Son can do nothing by himself, that doesn't mean he is incapable of doing things, as if he couldn't put on his shoes or butter his toast without help. No. It means Jesus does nothing on his own initiative. He does nothing of his own accord, of his own bat. There's no way in which Jesus is independent from his father. He's not like the prodigal son wanting to shake free of his father. The business they are engaged in is the family business. The son is just as committed to that business as his father is. And so, the son only does what he sees his father doing. Now, you and I might hear that and think, okay, I understand that they're committed to the same cause, but it does sound like Jesus is less than the Father. But look at the last part of verse 19. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. If Jesus can do whatever the Father does then Jesus must be as great as the Father. If he was even one degree less than the Father, he couldn't do whatever the Father does. So what's beginning to emerge here as Jesus speaks is a picture of perfect unity. Unity of purpose and power. Verse 19 has just described it from the Son's side. Now verse 20 gives it from the Father's side. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, and He will show Him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. There is no guardedness on the Father's part. He delights to have the Son join Him fully in the family business. The Father holds nothing back. He loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Even greater works than these means even greater than what Jesus just did at the beginning of chapter 5, healing the paralyzed man by the pool. Now Jesus is about to explain what those greater works are. But just before we move on to that, think about another implication of what Jesus is saying here. We said a moment ago, if Jesus can do whatever the Father does, then Jesus must be as great as the Father. And if the Father shows Jesus all He does, and if Jesus does whatever the Father does, then Jesus reveals the Father. He reveals Him perfectly. He makes the Father known perfectly. We can look at Jesus and know the Father. In fact, later on in John's Gospel, Jesus will say, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
That means Jesus does not give us a gentler, kinder face of God than the Father does. The kindness and gentleness of Jesus is the kindness and gentleness of the Father. And for that matter, when Jesus speaks about the seriousness of sin and the reality of judgment and hell, we cannot dismiss that as just Jesus talking, as if the Father would be more lenient than Jesus. Jesus' attitude to sin perfectly reflects the Father's attitude to sin. We can look at Jesus and listen to Jesus knowing in the actions and words of Jesus, we are also meeting the Father. Because he loves his Son and shows him all he does. The Son's equality with the Father means the Son is dependent on and perfectly united with the Father. And it means... The Son has authority to do what only God can do. Look at verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. It's important to realize those verses mention two powers that are unique to God. God alone is the life giver. In the book of Deuteronomy, God says, I put to death and I bring to life. He's the life giver and he is also the judge of all the earth. Now, it's true that humans can, in a sense, create life through sexual intercourse Humans can take life away by killing. And yes, humans can pass judgments on others. But these verses are talking about ultimate power over life and death. They're talking about the power to pass ultimate judgment. Deciding the eternal future of men and women. Those two powers belong to God alone. They are not powers others can take for themselves, nor are these powers that can be delegated to other lesser beings. The role of ultimate life giver and ultimate judge are roles only God can fill. And here Jesus says the Father has given those roles and those powers to him. Verse 21, the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Verse 22, the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So in these things, the Son operates not like a nervous ambassador who's desperately trying to carry out the strict instructions given to him by his superior, always scrolling through the policies and procedures manual to make sure he doesn't get it wrong. No, when the Son acts, He has freedom to do as He pleases. Back in chapter 3, we read, The Father has placed everything in the Son's hands. That's what we're being told here. The Son has authority to do what only God can do. 
He is not a lesser partner in the family business. And because the son is perfectly united with the father, it's not like the father has quit. It's not as if he got tired of being life giver and judge and decided to take a back seat. Not at all. The father is just as involved as ever. The perfect unity of the father and the son means the son's work is the father's work. Even as Jesus speaks and acts with absolute authority, he is speaking and acting in accordance with his Father's will. That means, for example, when Jesus broke social taboos back in chapter 4 to speak to the Samaritan woman at the well. It means when he told the desperate father in chapter 4 to walk away home, trusting Jesus' promise that his sick son would be healed. In chapter 5, when Jesus picked out one paralyzed man from all the invalids by the pool of Bethesda, and when Jesus told that man, get up and walk, all of that was the free choice of Jesus. He was acting with personal authority in those situations. And at the very same time, it was the precise will of his Father in heaven. And so whatever your situation is, don't ever think you're praying and crying out to a house divided in heaven. Don't ever think that maybe Jesus is on your side, but the Father's holding out on you. Or vice versa. The Son has authority to do what only God can do, and the Father and the Son operate with perfect oneness. They are a house united always. And so, the Son is to be honored just as the Father is honored. Verse 23, all of this is so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Don Carson says this. Because of the unique relation between the Father and the Son, the God who declares in Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not yield my glory to another. That God is not compromised or diminished when divine honors crown the head of the Son. And this bluntly is what rules out every other religion in the world. Every other faith. Those who do not honor Jesus the Son as God do not honor the Father who sent Him. Being sincere about your religion is not enough. If your religion does not honor Jesus Christ as God, then you're not honoring God at all. It is the Father's will that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is to the glory of the Father. The Son is to be honored just as the Father is honored. 
Our passage has already spoken about Jesus' own divine authority to give life and to judge. And now the last section pushes home the implications of that. These are not just ideas. This is what it means for you and me and what it means for the people we know in our work, in our families. It means life comes to those who hear and obey the Son's voice. Verse 24, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Notice again the unity of the Father and the Son. Those who have crossed from death to life are those who accept the word of the Son and believe in the Father who sent him. You can't do one without the other. Jesus says those men and women have eternal life. They have it now already. Saying they will not be judged means they will not come into judgment. They will not be condemned. When judgment day comes, the judgment will not go against those men and women. Already today, those who accept Jesus' word can be sure of a not guilty verdict on judgment day. Verse 25 emphasizes that. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Is Jesus talking here about the present or is he talking about the future? The answer is both. He's talking about a time that's coming, he says, but to some extent it has already come. Those who hear and respond to Jesus' voice can look forward to a future resurrection to eternal life. And already, those men and women and children experience something of resurrection life here and now. For them, eternal life has already begun. They live already in friendship with God. They live with no reason to fear death and judgment. Their future destiny is already decided. Their destiny is life. And that makes a huge difference to life in the present. It gives a peace. It gives a solid confidence that nothing else can give. Nowadays, we all realize the power of positive thinking. What a major effect that can have on a person's well-being. The England cricket team have been banging on about that for the last few weeks. It's all about positive thinking. But the problem is, if positive thinking isn't based on firm reality, if the person doing that positive thinking knows they're trying to be positive about things that are actually very uncertain, then that positive thinking loses most of its positive impact. But Jesus promises we can be sure and certain of God's eternal welcome. 
We can enter into that firm reality by responding to the voice of Jesus now, today. We can be sure we have already crossed over from death to life, today. And as we've already seen, this is because Jesus has authority to do what only God can do. Verse 26 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. We noticed earlier, this is not saying Jesus the Son is less than the Father. It's saying he's equally God along with the Father. Every other life in the universe is life given by God. Only God has life in himself. And both the Father and the Son have it. Verse 27 returns to the other unique power of God that was mentioned earlier, the power to judge. Verse 27 says, The Father has given the Son authority to judge because He is the Son of Man. Jesus first used the title Son of Man back in chapter 1. And we saw there, the Son of Man is described in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 describes a unique individual, a son of man, so a human being, but a human being who has all God's power and privileges, all God's authority. And Jesus claimed that son of man title for himself. He is that unique individual. Yes, he is fully and truly human. He was born as a baby. He grew up. He experienced hunger and tiredness like every human does. If you cut him, he bled. But unique in all of human history, Jesus is also the eternal Son of God. With authority to do what only God can do. And so we dare not ignore him. We dare not dismiss him as just a man. He has divine authority to judge. And eternal life comes to those and only those who hear and obey his voice. In verse 28, Jesus focuses in now on the future judgment day. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming, it's not here yet, it's coming, when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Is Jesus saying there that we earn life by doing good deeds and avoiding evil deeds? Not at all. Already in verse 24, Jesus has said life depends on how we respond to him. It's by hearing his word that we already in the present cross over from death to life. And hearing here means hearing and receiving. We cross from death to life by trusting Jesus. Trusting what he says about himself and what he has done for us. So then, 
why do our deeds get a mention here in verse 29? Jesus mentions our deeds simply to make the point that Scripture makes over and over again. Our deeds give evidence of whether we have crossed over from death to life. If we have received eternal life now, and our future destiny is to rise from the grave and live, that will already be making itself evident in our life now, today. Our deeds do not earn us life, but over the course of years... Our deeds show whether we are headed for life or not. Over time, our life will show whether we have truly heard the Son's voice and responded to Him in faith. In verse 30, Jesus emphasizes again, the reason we can trust Him and have faith in Him is because in all He does and says, he is dependent on and perfectly united with the Father who sent him. So what are you and I to do with all of this? All these deep things we've just heard from Jesus. Well, the one thing you and I cannot do is be neutral about it. Jesus' claims for himself are so big, we cannot be neutral about him. Seventy years ago, C.S. Lewis explained the significance of what we've heard this morning. This is what he says. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God... These words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or... You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Either Jesus is a madman or something worse, or he is who he claims to be. There's no middle ground where Jesus is just a nice guy or a wise teacher. We cannot be neutral about Jesus. The claims he makes for himself are too big for us to be neutral about him. And if we are going to dismiss him, we had better be very, very sure of ourselves. Because if Jesus is who he claims to be, 
our eternal future is in his hands. Many of us here can say the evidence for Jesus' death and resurrection is the proof we need to accept all that Jesus claims for himself. They are the proof he was speaking the truth. And so we can live our lives knowing our lives are in safe hands. Not the hands of just a nice guy or a wise teacher. Our lives are in the hands of the eternal, all-powerful Son of God. Our destiny is resurrection life. And our purpose in life now is to worship Him with all of our life. Let's respond with worship together now. As we sing, immortal honors rest on Jesus' head.
The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen.